Please listen carefully. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thanks for joining us. I hope you had a very meaningful Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And for those of you hit by this icy winter weather, I hope you made it out okay. On today's show, we're being joined in segment one by editor-at-large of The Bulwark, Bill Crystal, and in segment two by University of Baltimore law professor Kimberly Whaley. Both Crystal and Whaley are here to discuss a bizarre story about fraud and the 2020 presidential election that came to my attention this week. So most of you are probably aware that we use the Electoral College to elect presidents. When this happens, state government officials sign what are called Certificates of Ascertainment, which verify the state's electors and who they voted for in the presidential election. Those are sent with documentation signed by the electors themselves to the National Archives, who process them and then send them to Congress to count on January 6th. Now, as Politico and The Bulwark and others have covered, According to documents obtained by an organization called American Oversight, in the weeks after the 2020 election, Trump supporters sent fake election certificates to the National Archives, declaring that Trump had won five states that he'd actually lost. And these were Georgia, Arizona, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Nevada. Some of the supporters involved were top GOP officials in the states in question. Now, the Bulwark has covered this extensively. On January 15th, Bill Crystal commented, quote, The forged electoral certificates show coordination across states. Those fake certificates were key to the plan of the Eastman memo and to the Jeffrey Clark DOJ draft letter to Georgia, end quote. On January 16th, Charlie Sykes wrote, quote, Some perspective, if an average voter lied on their registration forms or forged an absentee ballot, they would face criminal charges and a world of legal hurt. But this case is far worse because the forged electoral certificates were coordinated and part of a larger conspiracy to overturn the presidential election, end quote. On January 17th, Philip Rotner argued that, quote, these phony certifications were not isolated one-off events. They were highly coordinated. A single glance at the five phony certificates shows that they are nearly identical in format and text, right down to the fonts. The strong implication? Somebody somewhere was running this show. End quote. Now, one of the biggest problems with all of this, of course, is the Electoral Count Act. A lot of political commentary right now is focused on voting rights. So you hear a lot of Democrats talking about the health of democracy, and they're really focused on voting rights rollbacks. And there's good reason to do that. But the biggest immediate threat to our democracy seems to be loopholes in the Electoral Count Act. As Philip Rotner notes, quote, nothing in either of the voting rights bills currently pending before Congress would inhibit partisan state officials acting under color of law from attempting to overturn popular elections in their states, end quote. Our guest today, Kimberly Whaley, she told me back in October, the last time she was on this podcast, that, quote, there are massive holes in the Electoral Count Act. It is stunning that there's nothing requiring states to count the popular vote. Arizona is proposing legislation to ignore the popular vote and allow the state legislature to pick the electors. That's not democracy. If this is not addressed, state legislatures and or Congress can steal the next election. 
the future of our republic is at stake, end quote. Writing in the Bulwark on January 17th, Chris Truax notes that, quote, Congress is free to reject any state's electoral votes for any reason at all. All that's required is the votes in Congress and the political will to act, end quote. On January 19th, he wrote, quote, The Electoral Count Act of 1867 is a ticking bomb. Now that its vulnerabilities have been exposed, it is only a matter of time before someone uses it to overturn an American presidential election and, with it, American democracy. Even an unsuccessful attempt would be disastrous, and time is running out. The last clear chance to reform the ECA expires with the current Congress on January 3rd, 2023. End quote. So let's bring in our guests to help us sort through this mess. First up is Bill Crystal. Crystal taught politics at the University of Pennsylvania and Harvard University before going on to serve as Chief of Staff to Education Secretary William Bennett in the Ronald Reagan administration and as Chief of Staff to Vice President Dan Quayle in the George H.W. Bush administration. He would then go on to help found the well-known conservative political magazine, The Weekly Standard. Today, he is editor-at-large of The Bulwark and a regular guest on leading political commentary shows. Bill Crystal, thanks for joining the show. Good to be with you again. All right, Mr. Crystal, as you sit here today, what is your level of alarm about the state of American democracy? Pretty high. Um, you know, I don't think we're collapsing tomorrow. Probably not, not collapsing after November 22. Not Probably not collapsing in November 2024, but... Compared to where I thought we were, would be, compared to where I thought we were 10 years ago and, you know, where you would have asked me to predict we would be, even with some declining trends, um, we have one of our two major parties that seems not to be committed really to democratic norms, at least not thoroughly committed, not, not firmly committed, uh, and could continue to move in a bad direction. It's moved in a bad direction, the Republicans in the last year. Uh, and Trump is the leading possible nominee for 2024. That by itself is alarming. And then the deep polarization, uh, which is somewhat asymmetric, as the political scientists say, more more radicalization from the right, but some on the left too. Uh, that's not healthy for the country. The gridlock in Washington. You put a lot of things, a lot of little things together that 10 years ago I would have said they're kind of manageable partisanship. We've had that before. Fine, the Senate doesn't work the way it maybe it should. You know, we've had that before. Uh, some irresponsible. Uh, leadership, uh, mistaken leadership. Uh, uh, we've had that before. But I feel like an awful lot of things have come together in ways that uh, really could create a crisis. One way to think about how abnormal our politics are today is to place some of the events that we are talking about in uh, a different historical context, right? So going back to the 1990s, for instance, the John Eastman memos and, and John Eastman's activity with Trump and in Trump's orbit how would those have been viewed then? No, it's flaky, you know, never going anywhere. Look, Pat Buchanan, I think, let me give you an example from the 90s that I think is apt. Pat Buchanan was a pretty powerful figure in the 90s. He took on the first President Bush. I served in that administration and it was a real headache for us in 92. Ran in 96 and failed, but people forget he, he uh, won, as I recall, in New Hampshire and, you know, or at least I think one or a second, I can't remember. Uh, and, you know, it was sort of serious for a while. But he, failed. He receded. He was really driven out of the Republican Party by the end of the 90s, by 99, 2000. So at that point, were there elements in the conservative movement, were there elements in the Republican Party that were worrisome to me, that were uh, bigoted, that were 
not fond of modern pluralistic liberal democracy? Absolutely. Were there signs that they could get a little more strength at the end of the Cold War, for example, where they could take advantage of the cultural and social changes that were happening in America? Sure. Was there enough partisanship that people were shocked? I remember this in 96. I said to some reporter, I was just, he asked, you know, would you support Buchanan if he won the Republican nomination? And I said, no, uh, I can't support him. I'd prefer to have four more years of Clinton if it came to it. And uh, I mean, there was shock among some of my colleagues that, you know, well, wait a second, we're Republicans. So the partisanship was there. But again, I mean, that would have been the Eastman memo would have been fringe. And again, I, and I always come back to this when I talk to people. There have been Trump-like figures in the past in America. Um, there have been demagogues. There have been successful demagogues. Uh, Buchanan, I'd say, is a slightly different type, but, but, but one of them. We just haven't had one as president. And we haven't had one as president, at least not in modern times, who ended up taking over and really dominating one of our two major parties. So another alternate history scenario is Trump makes it through the, the primaries, wins the nomination, kind of in a lucky way, wins the general election, though he loses the popular vote. But he's constrained. He's there four years. He sort of, uh, Congress semi ignores him. Uh, he has an administration that also can ignore him to a fair degree. He sits around the White House, you know, tweeting. And I think that's what some people hoped and, and, and uh, predicted and hoped. And some Republicans and conservatives, to be fair, who weren't where I was on Trump, who weren't never Trump, were sort of, look, we, we can work around him and constrain him. And it wasn't a crazy view in 2016 or, or 2017, I think. I thought it was wrong then. I think it was wrong. But um, but he was president for four years. And it culminates in January 6th. And now a year later, he's as strong as ever in the Republican Party. For me, that's what's really scary about this moment. And I that five-year, six-year sequence of Trump, it's one thing for him to run for president. It's one thing for him to do better than you expect. It's one thing for him to win the nomination. It's one thing for him to win the presidency. But after his presidency, after everything we saw on his handling of COVID and many, many other things, after what we saw from November 3rd to January 6th, the fact that he is as strong as he is now and that Trumpism is as strong as it is now, and that is unnerving. Now, Bill, you've been a major player in the GOP for a long time, going all the way back to the Reagan administration. So when you look back over the course of your career, now I'm not going to sit here and make you take personal responsibility you know, solely for where we are with our politics, but... You received a lot of criticism in the 1990s, for instance, for an unwillingness to work with, unwillingness to compromise with Democrats. You received criticism for your approach to government and to governing. So when you look back across the course of your career and you think about yourself and people like you and the approach that you took to your politics, um, is there any one thing, any two things, any five things you think, gosh, if we had done these things differently, if me and people like me had done these things differently, we might not have arrived at this place. You know, I I don't think I was the most partisan of Republicans or the most dogmatic of conservatives. I was a McCain supporter, for example, as opposed to Bush. I, I broke with the party on it. Yes, we supported Bill Clinton's intervention in Bosnia, I remember, in 95 when we started the Weekly Standard. And a lot of our subscribers were upset. We're supposed to be anti-Clinton. I said, no, look, on foreign policy, if he's doing the right thing, you got to support him. So I will say in my defense, as it were, that I think I was more heterodox, more willing to break with orthodoxy than, than some people. Having said that, I think I was not willing to break, uh, not willing enough to break with orthodoxy, not willing enough. And I don't mean just uh, publicly break. I don't think that was a problem, honestly. I think I've always been pretty willing to speak my mind. But I mean, 
privately, just my own thinking, really. Uh, I, I was too willing to assume that, you know, I'm on this side, and this side basically wants the right thing. I think it did when I came to Washington to work for Reagan. And the other side, policies are pretty bad. And so we've got to sort of just swallow hard with some of these allies we have and and not, you know, make too much of an issue of some of these sort of positions we at least nominally have, which we're not going to probably do much about them anyway. So it's kind of harmless. And I just went along with too much on the Republican side and on the conservative side. And I think in my own thinking on some issues, ranging from economics to social issues, I just was a little too dug in. I'm sort of, well, this is what I said. This is what I thought when I came to Washington in 85. I'm still going to think it in 2005. And I probably didn't update my thinking or just rethink things as much as I should have. I mean, I, one, one aspect of Never Trump that has been uh, challenging in some ways, but actually personally, I'd say uh, fulfilling almost, is the kind of liberation one I now feel. And I've discussed this with some of my colleagues. I think they, they agree with this. They think this too from sort of feeling like you have to sort of support acts and you sh- probably shouldn't criticize why. As I say, for me, it was less of a public thing and almost more just of a private thing. I wouldn't even bother thinking about that. The, you know, they're an ally, the gun issue. You know, the NRA is part of the Republican coalition. I've seen some of the studies that gun control doesn't work too well anyway. Uh, you know, they seem a little more extreme than they used to be, but I'm just, it's not my issue. I never wrote a word about it probably, so I'm just going to, avoid it and stay out of it kind of i now feel there was a kind of irresponsibility that i and you know people like me tolerated on the conservative side and on the republican side that was uh, a small part really or you know a sort of fringe irresponsibility uh, and not one with great costs at one point 10 or 20 years ago but we're now paying a lot of we are paying a high price for for the degree to which that was sort of got normalized. And so I, I, I wish I could do some of that over again. Well, let's talk about uh, some current issues here. So, and you guys have covered this quite extensively in the bulwark, but for our listeners who have no idea what we're talking about, what in the heck is going on with phony electors? So they need to read, of course, the bulwark, the bulwark.com and, uh, and, uh, and uh, it's free the website and, um, and uh, I think they'll enjoy it. They can also join Bulwark Plus and pay a little bit of money and get some additional. Uh, I'm a subscriber. Happy subscriber. You're, you're, okay, well, you're a testimony yes. to it. So <laughs> people with the best, the best judgment, the best discretion, the best uh, understanding are, are Bulwark Plus members. So what's amazing, you know, this has to do with the whole January 6th plot. And one view of it is, of course, it was terrible, storming the Capitol, unseemly, you know, really dangerous in some ways. But I mean, it was kind of craziness, you know, and Trump was irresponsible, and he was a rabble-rouser. What people I don't think have appreciated is how much of a plot there was, a real plan to try to overturn the election results. Now, it was a little wacky, as, as you mentioned, the Eastman Memo. Eastman Memo was not mainstream, but of course, overturning election results is never going to be mainstream. But what is striking is that in seven states, uh, Trump and Trump allies, the the, the Senior people close to Trump, some in the White House, some of the Republican Party, some, you know, his informal allies like Giuliani and those people got the electors in these states to send in a sort of fake certificate saying, actually, we're the electors who are duly certified from Arizona, from Michigan and so forth. Two of the states, they were kind of aware that what they were doing was a little dodgy, not really supposed to like forge documents and send them into the National Archives and the Secretary of State and say, you know, or whatever, whoever gets them, Justice Department or something, Congress and say, hey, here's a, here's a certificate, a certificate of that we're the electors. So two of them put in some sort of weasel language to kind of 
I think in Pennsylvania and another state to, to get keep them out of legal trouble. And uh, that was, and everyone at the time, we all, it actually was reported at the time a little bit. And the Trump people talked about it, that they're going to be all, they're all slates of electors. We can't just, you know, this was the whole plan was that Trump would, would, the Pence would say, I'm sorry, I can't tell who won Arizona. So we're just going to put off the Arizona vote. And then you get to the end of the vote and Trump would be ahead and they'd either be a go to the house or whatever, whatever plans they had at that point. And, um, so that's become much more, we've got now the letters, we've got the documents, it's become much more visible in the last few weeks. And I think it does show how much of a plan there was, how much of a plot there was, and how many people were willing to go along with it. These electors, you know, the people who are usually designated electors in states are kind of party loyalists who are getting a, you know, a moment in the sun where they get to be in history, their name will be on the election somewhere or other, and they get to meet in the Capitol and, you know, uh, uh, sort of uh, cast their vote, you know, record that they, that, that X has won their state. And, um, and instead, they just went along with this. And a lot of state officials, party officials in the state capitals, in the relevant states, but also in Washington, uh, more than went along with this, they were encouraging this, and then of course at the high Meadows and and Giuliani and people like that. This was part of the whole plan to pressure Pence to to allow Pence to be able to say, "Hey, they're alternate states, slates of electors," and then of course they were going to pressure Pence as well. So it's become a. I think it's a good piece of evidence. A, that there was genuine criminal activity. I mean, it is a crime to forge. I mean, you or I would go to prison for voter fraud, right? Yeah, you go to prison for voter fraud. People go to prison for for forging bank, you know, statements to send (laughs) to banks and to companies and to, right, all universities. If you forge your transcript, I mean, this is not like uh, rocket science to see that you shouldn't be doing this. And so, uh, and I hope it brings home sort of the, the seriousness of the threat, the degree to which Trump Part of the threat was going to he was going to get rid of the acting attorney general and put in Jeffrey Clark, who was seen would go along and say, actually, the Justice Department has looked at this and thinks that this is a legitimate slate of electors. You know, so they had a sort of multi-layered plan, and uh, now they're moving ahead with this plan for 2024. Um, and you know, in terms of defeating uh, state officials who resisted Trump's effort to subvert the election. And so forth. So I think it, the electors is one strand, but an interesting one that shows that it was more than you know chaos in the streets for one day. It was more than Trump sitting around the Oval meeting with the Pillow Guy. You know that there were there was a real attempt to sort of lay the groundwork for overturning the election, and they're going to be much more serious about it next time. So Chris Truax was writing in the Bulwark on Monday, January seventeenth, and. This is a long quote, but I think it's an important one, so bear with me. But he says, quote, suppose that instead of using Congress to count electoral votes, we had an electoral vote tally program, an app that simply added up a state's electoral votes as they came in. Suppose that the app had a bug in it that allowed anyone watching the vote count to hack into the back end and change the vote totals. Once we discovered this flaw, would we ever use this app again without patching it? Obviously, no. Except that the answer is also yes, because while it was designed by 19th century politicians and not Silicon Valley tech bros, this is an exact description of the system we use to count electoral votes today. And nobody in either Congress or the White House seems all that concerned with fixing it, end quote. Truex goes on to note that, quote, Congress is free to reject any state's electoral votes for any reason at all. All that is required is the votes in Congress and the political will to act, and this action cannot be challenged, unquote. So, Bill, when we're talking about fake electors, 
when we're talking about really devastating loopholes in the Electoral Count Act, you know, how do you convince somebody that this isn't just overheated rhetoric? This isn't just tribalism. How do you convince them that, you know, for people who think, ah, this is just the boy who cried wolf. They're talking about election subversion again. That no, there there really is a wolf this time. There really is a danger. So a couple of things. I mean, you know, 147, I think it was House Republicans, a majority voted to overturn the electors of Arizona and Pennsylvania. Last time, there's zero evidence, zero evidence to Trump on those states. It wasn't even plausible. There weren't even, there was no facts. There were no facts laid out. There was no legal theory behind it, really. But they could, so they did. Now, so that's, could that happen for five states, not two states next time? And could the Senate go, senators go along? And could we have a genuine constitutional crisis? I don't think that's out of the question. Uh, as I say, some of these states, Pennsylvania wasn't even that close. So, um, so it, it's a serious problem. Uh, and what Truax's point is, and I think this is a point generally in life, you know, we, you can have all the laws and regulations you want. We can, we can and should tighten up the Electoral Count Act. I think that might well happen this year. At the end of the day, you need a certain amount of good faith, you know, a, a certain amount of, of belief in the system, a certain amount of people behaving responsibly and decently. This is true in every business. Uh, you can have all the, you know, the, the, the controls, the accounting, the double checks of everything you want. And if enough people want to cheat, uh, someone's going to succeed at some point in cheating. And especially if that, person organizing the cheating is at or near the head of the business or is running half the business to use the analogy of the you know political system and the republican party and has all kinds of lieutenants down in the you know ranks changing documents for him and putting pressure on other people to lie and so forth so we uh, our system political system but i'd say our society in general depends on a certain amount of obeying norms, believing in norms, going along with decisions. This is true when the homeowners association meets and votes 42 to 30 to, for something. And unless there's just massive fraud, you accept it. You don't say, wait a second, I want to have a second vote because I know there are 20 people who couldn't come. You know what I mean? This, If everyone behaved this way, nothing. I won in a landslide. I won in a landslide. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if, if nothing can work. And you need a goodwill. You need honesty. You need a kind of decency. And on the electoral side, you need to accept that you've lost an election if you have. Richard Nixon lost a much closer election in 1960. He was the sitting vice president, obviously lost to Kennedy for the presidency. And I happened to see this just the other day. It might have been legitimate fraud. Where there really was some fraud. And Nixon plausibly might have won Illinois and Texas without fraud. And then he would have won the presidency. Nixon conceded. You could could never prove it. And you just couldn't put the country through this. and it probably wouldn't have changed it, but it might have. And then if you watch, Nixon presides over the counting of the vote on January 6th, actually, 1961, as the sitting vice president. He announces that John Kennedy and Linda Johnson will be the next president and vice president of the United States. And then he sort of, it's interesting, he says, can I just, Mr. Speaker, you know, that kind of old-fashioned way, can I presume to have a second, a minute to, for just a personal remark? And the Speaker says, certainly. And the Vice President, Vice President Nixon, gives a very gracious, and he wasn't, you know, Nixon was Nixon, right? He wasn't the, the embodiment always of this, a tough politician, ended up doing some things wrong as president, to say the least. But he gives a gracious statement of this is what America is about. You know, I lost. President Kennedy won. We all wish him well. Uh, we will continue to have our political debates, but this is the peaceful transfer of power, and this is what makes America a great democracy. I'm paraphrasing for something like this. And he just thought, well, that's the way it's got to be. That's the way the system has to work. And that's where the Trump, Trump himself, and the, but, but also the spilling out of all the Trumpist 
elements of we've got to fight. We can't accept this. It's a fraud. This is rigged. You know, they're lying. I mean, that's where that gets so dangerous when that becomes not just one person, but a whole bunch of people and a whole bunch of elected officials and a whole bunch of people in, in, in important positions. And then a whole millions of voters cheering them on and egging them on. And this is why I think we're in a dangerous situation. All right. Well, as always, Bill is very busy today, so we don't have much time with them. We got to let him go. So two quick wrap up questions. Uh, first one, what do you think is the biggest revelation that could come from the January 6th committee? And will it matter? I think the January 6th committee will discover what Trump was doing that day and the willing, his willingness to sit and watch and enjoy the Capitol being trashed and hoping that Pence would be persuaded or forced to overturn his decision. So I think it could matter. All right. And last question. Um, I think this is an important one to wrap up with. Uh, you wrote a piece. The title was Trump's defeat a year ago was Dunkirk, not D-Day. Now, I would encourage everybody to go read that piece, of course, and to read the bulwark. But um, for, for those that didn't read that piece and have yet to read it, what did you mean by that? We thought and hoped on, on November 3rd, 2020, that, okay, Trump's defeated it's still going to be a, a tough fight to restore democratic norms and the rule of law and to change, save the Republican Party from Trump and Trumpism. But sort of like D-Day, there's tough fighting ahead. But we've, it's kind of an inflection point. We've turned the corner. The key moment has happened, the key, the key victory. It turns out it's more like Dunkirk, where you avoided a disaster, a second Trump term. And then on January 6th, we avoided a disaster, overturning a second, uh, uh, the, electoral, the electoral results. But uh, what Dunkirk bought was time for the British to reassemble themselves, and then they had to survive the Blitz, and then time for the U.S. to enter the war later, and for Hitler to attack the Soviet Union, and for them to end up on the right side. So it was important, but it wasn't uh, the beginning of the victory. And I I wrote that because I was really so struck by what's happened in the last year that after January 6th, we were seen for 24, 48 hours that the Republican Party and the conservative movement would really decisively turn away, not just from Trump, but from Trumpism and the demagoguery and the rabble-rousing and the lies. And it turned out they didn't. So Trump lost the election. We've uh, we now we're fighting another day, but but the we have not turned the corner. I guess that would be my point. Just like Churchill said after Dunkirk, look, we, it was great that we saved the three hundred thousand members of the British army, but we've now got to defend Britain, and then we're going to have to organize and get new allies and defeat Nazi Germany. You know, we're, we're, it's not not to compare Trump to Nazi Germany, but the fight has only begun. It's not it's not nearing the it's the end of the beginning, perhaps, but not the beginning of the end of the fight. Bill Crystal, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, I really enjoyed it and stay well. All right. Well, next up, we have University of Baltimore law professor Kimberly Whaley. Kim, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, all right. So before we begin, I asked the same question to Bill Crystal in the last segment. So I'll ask you the question as well. Kimberly Whaley, as a, as a law professor, how concerned are you about the state of American democracy? It's, it's urgent. I, I've lost um, all but a modicum of faith that we are going to survive through the next election. And when I say that survive, we will maybe nominally survive as a democracy, but we are swiftly moving to a, a government where politicians choose who's in power, not the people. And so as a real uh, realistic matter, that's not a democracy anymore. And so far, particularly this week, given what happened with voting rights in the Senate, I don't see anything stopping that trajectory. 
All right. So I understand the focus on vote casting. I understand the focus on voting rights rollbacks. I've read a lot of the stuff from places like the Brennan Center, for instance, which, you know, see that as a big problem. I get all of that. But the most immediate threat to our democracy seems to be on the vote counting side, things like the Electoral Count Act. Am I wrong about that? No, I've been saying the same thing since January 6, 2021. It's picking and choosing the votes that matter at the other end to justify politicians staying in power. That is new. Um, That is something that happened with the big lie. And sadly, it is surviving in a very robust way. Uh, So I could not agree with you more. You know, if this Congress doesn't address this, a number of people have pointed out, it's not really clear when we'll have a chance to address this again. So why are Democrats focusing so disproportionately on vote casting when the vote counting part of this is so important? Well, I think the Democrats are, you know, I'm not a political pundit, but they're, they're behind the eight ball on lots of things. I, th- I think that spending all that time on Build Back Better when it should have really been on voting was a mistake. And I said it at the time, but others thought it was really important for Joe Biden's legitimacy and success as a president. Of course, that all failed. Um, but you mentioned the Electoral Count Act. Uh, that is what people are saying now, finally, that maybe there can be some votes around that. Even Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, leader has flagged that he might support that. That is basically the ancient statute that that governs what happens on January 6th. And there are gaps in it. It doesn't mention anything about um, Mike Pence only having a ceremonial uh, role. I think he properly took that position and frankly is a hero for that, regardless of where your politics are. I I think Mike Pence owes uh, the American public owe him a debt of gratitude, at least for now. It also doesn't mandate that Um, It doesn't confine members of Congress's ability to stall the count based on bogus claims of fraud. So that's the second loophole that needs to be changed. That is that the statute should tell members of Congress, sure, you can object to certifications, but you need actual evidence. And the statute should implement in the statute what the standard is, clear and convincing, whatever. There are plenty of them in the law that can be borrowed the third big uh, blind spot has to do with November 4th. The Electoral Count Act assumes that the states, in deciding how to cast their electoral college votes, each state gets to decide how to do it, but it assumes that they will do it based on the, p- the actual votes cast by human beings. It doesn't actually require states to account for the popular vote. So in theory, They could pass a law and we have these very radical Republican, now the new Republican Party, I call it. I'm not the Bill Kristol Republican Party. Uh, Radical, radicals across the country, including in now more and more within the bureaucratic system of elections that could very well decide, you know what, we are going to pick the electors. We don't care what the popular vote says, period. I think that comes as a shock to many people. So the Electoral Count Act needs, as a matter of federal law, to say, sure, states, you can still count your votes the way you want, but you have to count the votes. That is, right now, most states, it's winner takes all. If you get 51% of the popular vote, you get 100% of the Electoral College votes. That's fine. But they can't say, we don't care at all 
what the popular vote is. We are in power and we're going to just give the electors to our candidate. That is a terrifying prospect. In this moment, there's nothing stopping that the next round. And that's the third vital in my mind element that needs to be amended in the Electoral Count Act. And I agree with you, it has to be pronto. That is between now and November. And um, given what's happened with the filibuster, given, uh, frankly, Mitch McConnell's um, bad faith in, in adhering to, to, to signals, I should say, uh, there's no guarantee this will even happen between now and November, which is back to our original your original question, why am I so um, down on the fate of democracy? This is why, because right now there are too many holes that need to be plugged in a very narrow window to do so. Now, uh, I think this is important because last time I talked to you, you really emphasized this point very strongly. And, and, I, and you know, for all the people who tell me, well, you know, I, you know, here you are talking about election subversion again. This is all just tribalism. This is all just overheated rhetoric. Um, I, I think you have a nice response to that, which is no, uh, there are people in the states right now trying to enact laws which say we don't need to respond to the popular vote, correct? Yes, I think the last I checked at the Brennan Center, which is, as you mentioned, kind of the go-to place for updated information, 19 states, 19 states. And we're also seeing, you know, people don't understand, they talk about the big lie. Um, that's really... That not only is it illogical because everybody's on one ballot. So the the same people in Congress that are that are adhering to the big lie, some of them got on the ballot I mean, in office based on the same ballot. So if it's fraudulent, it's fraudulent as to them um, as well. But um, so the se- the second piece is that there are thousands and thousands of regular Americans, friends, neighbors, teachers um, who went out in a pandemic to make an election work. And, mo- and many of the people that manage the system, they actually hand out the ballots and make sure that they're properly transferred and all that are regular people. They're not politicians. Um, they are public servants. Some of them are not even paid. The ones that are paid are paid very little and now are getting harassed. Um, those jobs are now being sort of taken over by ideological politicians who will not do the right thing, who are not guided by ethics and the rule of law and democracy. So yeah, that's really terrifying. It's sort of like the, you know, the the cliche, the inmates taking over uh, the the guard station at the prison, it's going to, it's going not, it's going to be managed in a very different way. So uh, this phony elector story, um, your reaction to it, how serious should we take it? Um, consequences of all of this? Give us your insights. Well, I think what it is shaping up is that there was a massive conspiracy. And let me tell you, we, we hear that word. It came up a lot in the first impeachment with Donald Trump, um, where Bill Barr, then attorney general, came out and said, I mean, I'm sorry, not impeachment, the Mueller report. No, no collusion. Well, collusion is not a legal term. Conspiracy is. And Mueller did not decide that he had evidence of a conspiracy. Why? Because it requires an agreement to violate the law. You don't actually have to execute that agreement, but you have to make the agreement and take some steps. Um, The Justice Department has now indicted 11 people on seditious conspiracy, conspiracy to take steps to take the election away. Um, I think this is probably the biggest crime in the history of America. That is right now, the question between Congress and the Justice Department is how many others were involved in this alleged conspiracy Um, and why these fake ballots are so crucial 
um, are so critical and, and terrifying, frankly, is that the way this conspiracy appears was uh, designed as step one was going to be to pretend that there were failed elections in six of the narrow states by submitting two slates of electors. And Mike Pence would say, gosh, I can't decide. And now we're going to have to kick this to the Congress. And if it goes to the Congress, it's a pure majority vote. And the Republicans would have given it to Donald Trump. I believe that was Eastman's plan. That was the plan. So those six, six fake slates, they're all with the same font. It's mainly the same language. They were submitted um, to the United States government, which is an, which is itself unlawful. But that was the plan that he would then have fake, fraudulent, illegal justification to to swing the election to the United States Congress that, as we know, even after the insurrection, 147 of them voted to steal the election from Joe Biden um, and the people and give it to themselves. Um, so the question is, you know, that's a big deal to have managed that so who was in on that? Who knew about that? Um, I you know again I, I think the problem in this moment isn't is there wrongdoing? It's that it's on such a massive potential scale. It the tendrils of it potentially go so deeply into uh, the inner workings not only of the Trump administration but the United States Congress sitting members in this moment uh, that it, the question is how do we wrap our brains around it, let alone the law and accountability around it. Um, I think it's vital that we are going to have public hearings this spring. Jamie Raskin has made clear um, House of Representatives in Maryland, who was also the lead impeachment manager for the second impeachment, that it's, I think he said something like it's going to blow the roof off things, which means there will be new information than what we know. It will not just be a redo of the second impeachment. So the American public is going to have information. And then, frankly, I think what's vital is not even so much what does Merrick Garland do in the Justice Department, but what do we do with the ballot box in November with the members of Congress that were in potentially on what looks like a conspiracy? I don't have the evidence. I'm not accusing anyone of being in a conspiracy. But we know, at least from the Justice Department standpoint, there is, in their view, evidence beyond a reasonable doubt where they could win with by a jury that... There was a conspiracy. So part two of the conspiracy, part one was uh, gin it up that so that they could pretend that it was actually a failed election. Mike Pence refused to play ball. Version two was then bring the insurrectionists to the Capitol to do it by violence. And that is what we saw. They just didn't achieve it. Um, But we also know from the 800 plus uh, people that have been indicted that were on the ground that many of them believed that Donald Trump had called them so to the Capitol. So how were they financed? How was all of that communicated? We know it was done through encrypted signal app, communications that are not public in this moment. Again, this is this is beyond Hollywood's wildest dreams. It's one of those scenarios 10 years ago, uh, you know, with some fancy Hollywood star in the 80s, it was Bruce Willis. And I don't know, the 90s, maybe Matt Damon, we'd have watched and said, oh, this will never happen. It's like aliens landing on Earth. Well, folks, we don't even know the beginning of it. Um, and so I think these six fake ballots are a, or certifications are a huge, huge, huge deal. All right, Kimberly Whaley, uh, we have a very limited amount of time to take care of the Electoral Count Act before the next election. Is it going to happen? 
That I can't even imagine. I, I, I can't imagine answering that question because if the answer is no, um, we're in really dire straits. And let me just add to this. I mean, I know you mentioned that some people say, oh, come on, this is just scaremongering. This is just politics. What people don't understand is the ability to vote people out from the ballot in, in from office at the ballot box that we're talking about, the ability to have your vote actually matter. That's what preserves our individual liberties. When I, what I say liberties, the bill of rights, the ability to speak without government penalizing you, the ability to assemble or associate with people with government, not bullying you based on your beliefs, the ability to, to practice a religion, um, that of your choice, even if it's not consistent with the party in power, the ability to criticize your government without penalty. What I mean by penalty, it could be anywhere from tax audits to being rounded up on the street and just disappear. This happens in the world. It happens in places that at one point were functioning democracies. There's absolutely zero reason to think it won't happen in America. So if you're someone who thinks this is a big, you know, pile of bunk, fine, but it's not, it's our children and our grandchildren that are going to suffer the consequences of potentially living in a world where their humanity, their independence, their ability to fully live out their lives will be confined and constrained by the government. It's as scary as it comes. Um, so that's my, that's my answer to that. And, and, you know, if you're listening, call your members of Congress in this moment um, and tell them to get to get as particularly if you're in a state with Republicans and tell them to get off their d- tush and and do something to save democracy because you're in charge, not them. That's my number one. As far as number two, <laughs> happier note, um, my next book is How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why. It's a common sense guide to everyday dilemmas. It's my third in a series with Harper Collins. It comes out February 22nd. It's easy to remember, 2 22 uh, And it's it follows up. My first book was on the Constitution, how to read the Constitution and why. That led to my second book, which is, guess what? All of our rights depend on the ballot box. I just explained why that's the case, because our Constitution is only so good as it's enforced. It's like a speed limit. People will speed if they don't have a consequence. Uh, the voting box, the ballot box is the consequence for violating the Constitution. And honestly, I wrote the third book, How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why, to sort of push back on this notion that there's no such thing as truth and there's no such thing as fact and that and that uh, you can make good decisions in your life by joining a team that is team blue, team red. Um, lawyers pay, you know, people pay a lot of money to go to law school and sacrifice a lot every year to learn a skill. And um, people pay for lawyers because they have a skill that others don't have. So this book brings that skill out of the elite uh, law school classroom and into people's living rooms by breaking down the le- the lawyer system of making decisions into five easy steps that you can use for, you know, trying to get a higher, a better job, um, decide whether to buy the house, decide whether to take um, a step in, you know, in, in a healthcare decision that might be very serious. We know this right now with the pandemic. Um, so it, it just a, in a thumbnail, I mean, it, it makes sure that you take, that you gather good information It makes sure that you can consider counter arguments and it makes sure that you check it against your values. And it finally makes sure that you accept that like lawyers have to accept. Sometimes you don't get everything you want. So it's it's a it's a tool for people um, to help them make good decisions in their lives, and also maybe to communicate in a way that's a little more productive than we're in right now. And 
um, you know, I, I hope it makes a difference for some, some people in their lives. Well, this sounds like an excellent book, How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why, A Common Sense Guide to Everyday Dilemmas by Kimberly Whaley. It's coming out on February 22nd, 2022. That's 2-22-22. Go to Amazon, go anywhere you buy a book and uh, just go ahead and put it in your cart now. Go ahead and pre-order it. You'll love it. I know you will. Kim does great work. So, uh, Kim, thank you so much for coming on today. I am terrified about the current state of American democracy about where our country is going and I am praying that we do the right thing and I'm grateful that you and Bill Crystal have come on the show today and helped us sort through all this. So, Kim, thanks so much for coming back on the Utterly Moderate podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's been uh, it's been great to chat with you, Lawrence. And that's it for this episode, folks. Don't forget to visit us at connorsforum.org. That's C O N N O R S F O R U M. Org. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. There's a chapel in Kansas, standing on the exact center of the lower 48. It never closes. All are more than welcome to come meet here in the middle. It's no secret. The middle has been a hard place to get to lately, between red and blue, between servant and citizen, between our freedom and our fear. Now, fear has never been the best of who we are. And as for freedom, it's not the property of just the fortunate few. It belongs to us all, whoever you are, wherever you're from. It's what connects us, and we need that connection. We need the middle. We just have to remember the very soil we stand on is common ground, so we can get there. We can make it to the mountaintop, through the desert, and we will cross this divide. Our light has always found its way through the darkness. And there's hope on the road up ahead. trails to you until we meet again happy trails to you keep smiling until then who cares about the clouds when we're together just sing a song and bring the sunny weather happy trails to
trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then. Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing the song and bring the sunny weather. Happy trails to you. Goodbye, good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you.